like the women, the question is, well, why? You know, and, and there are probably several reasons. Mm-hmm. One, better coaching, mm-hmm. right? I imagine I agree. this guy did not receive instructions from his cat or from his coaches <laughs> that said, "Hey guys, here's how we're going to train. Watch this cat." You know, he probably <laughs> didn't receive instructions from his cat either. Yeah, sorry, I, I missed that one up. But you know, you see the point I'm making, right? Where the pictures are sixty. coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta. We are glad to be back with you here on another news and research week. Patrick, you started running again. I did start running again, uh, most specifically, you know, over the last week or so, and it's it's nice. It's a little warmer than my last <laughs> run right. uh, by a solid 50, 60 degrees or so, so that's, <laughs> that's been taking some getting used to. For sure. Uh, but I'm always happy to be back and enjoying st- what I call story time with George. That's kind of my right nickname on. for our long runs together. Right on, right on. Well, and, and I'm back running again too, so it is kind of nice to, to, to be running and then to have somebody to run with and all that sort of thing. So yeah, you you if, if you listen to the podcast, you might hear Patrick and I, since we tend to record on Sundays often right after we've run, um, we'll probably be like referencing back to various things we talked about on our long run and all that sort of thing. So very good. But um yeah, it's funny, you know, you talk about being warm, and we had talked about, you know, the, the podcast that came out last week, that we put out last week, was about heat acclimatization, mm-hmm. you know, and heat acclimation and all that sort of thing, running in the heat. And it was funny, because this week, I kind of realized, and, and I, I mentioned this to a lot of the athletes that I coach as well, I kind of realized that, oh wait, yeah, it's hot again. And, and these habits that I had established last summer, and reestablished the summer before that, and the summer before that, and the summer before that... Essentially, yeah, I have to reestablish those habits again in terms of, of drinking during the week and, mm-hmm. and, and all that sort of thing and, and staying hydrated from workout to workout. And, and even like when I'm sitting in a restaurant, like, okay, finish the water before you leave. Or right. when, I, when I do a workout on my bike, okay, you have a bottle of water, go ahead and finish the bottle before you get off the bike or before you actually move out of the room or whatever it happens to be. You know? mm-hmm. Like those habits, I got to get back into those habits. Um, right. And for me, it's the, the real decision point is at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Buy more fruit. Over yeah. the last two weeks, I've definitely noticed like, oh, I'm running out of apples on like, you know, three days into my week. Yeah. Um, it's like, all right, like buy more apples, right. buy more cherries, buy but, more peaches. Because but, but how great is it that all those fruits are in the, uh, are in the, 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 the grocery store right now? Holy cow. Yeah. We have watermelon like every meal. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. I, I consume fruits like nobody's business. And dude, cherries are my favorite fruit. And and it's funny because they start coming out like in May. And maybe half the bag is good and half the bag is bad. And now they're getting better and better to where like 9 out of 10 cherries are really good cherries. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm fired up. I'm buying multiple bags at a time. Very exciting to me. Um, on the note of heat ac- uh, acclimatization, on the note of heat acclimation... Uh, I was actually thinking about this morning before you and I uh, went for a run. Now, you'll recall, uh, those of you who listened to the podcast last week, we said that, that heat essentially has three things. So there's three things that happen physiologically to you um, that you have to deal with in hot weather. 
One is dehydration. Mm-hmm. So dehydration can happen more quickly in, in hot weather. And that seems kind of obvious, but, but it's obviously important. Uh, two is that uh, resources in your body get diverted to cooling your skin rather than powering your legs when you're running or, or when you're cycling or what have you. Um, and and so, so you need potentially more calories, but, but certainly uh, you have less energy to, to bring to bear uh, for, for moving yourself down the road. And that's why even the like first mile of a race is more difficult than the heat. Yeah, yeah, you know, for or, sure. like, or the first hill repeat. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, for sure. Um, and it's the reason why you know you should dump water on yourself and, and, mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. You know, do things to cool your skin so that your body doesn't have to cool the skin for you, and that'll actually make you go faster. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just make you feel better; it'll actually make you go faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing that we talked about was was core temperature, mm-hmm. so that your core temperature can get much higher when it's hot outside. Um, such that it's almost like trying to run with a, with a fever. Um, and you had mentioned uh, one thing that I think is important um, and that I was thinking about this morning before our long run about how you can raise up your core temperature by drinking coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're getting ready to go out for a hot run, if you have a cup of coffee, you're actually going to raise your core temperature and make you more susceptible to, to the issues related around around core temperature being too high right. in the heat. Um and, and by the same token, one thing that I've read in numerous places says that, that you know, one way to kind of lower your core temperature before a hot race is to eat like a Gatorade slushy or something mm-hmm. like that. And so you, you get something cold inside of you and that can actually lower your core temperature and start you in a better place before a hot race. Um, but I was thinking about this morning because my standard Sunday practice before a, a long run is to go to Starbucks and to get a co- get get some some tea mm-hmm. and to take you know forty minutes or so before the run actually starts, just kind of sit there in my car and read email and check Facebook and drink tea. Right. And I was like, that might not be my best plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I might need to. I mean, it's a great plan for the winter, but I, but I might need to come up with a better plan here over the summer. Um, yeah, I like my routines though, man. So <laughs> Yeah, and along those same tokens, I mean, it kind of gets back to what you mentioned when you talk about establishing new routines. I can tell you, I I think it was two or three years ago, I was making the mistake of chugging hot coffee and then going for a run and being like, man, this is not the greatest idea mm-hmm. or this doesn't feel right. So then I started making iced coffee just to have. Mm-hmm. Now, then that means you have to make it the night before, refrigerated, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it's much more of a, right. you can't just wake up, roll out of bed at 628, Hit the press, press the on and you're ready with your coffee at 6.30. Right. Um, but it, it, that actually had, ended up having kind of a big impact on how I perceived the runs, mm-hmm. how much I enjoyed the runs because, you know, talking about habits, I'm like you, I need about 45 minutes or so to kind of wake up and be ready. I yeah. can't, some people roll out of their bed into their shoes and they're taking off, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, I certainly need some time to kind of wake up get engaged yeah. and re- to really enjoy the race. So it's interesting how you mentioned that. Yeah. I used to do that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I used to like, if I, if I was going to go for a run at 6am, I mean, literally alarm would be like 5:50. Yeah. And I would be half asleep for the opening of the run. And that was on purpose. Like yeah. squeeze every minute. And it, it wasn't until I got married and then my wife started doing some morning workouts and that's sort of thing that she said, no, there's, there's some value to getting up half an hour ahead of time and having a cup of coffee and mm-hmm. sort of you know getting your mind going and all that sort of thing. And I totally agree with her. She's totally right, particularly yeah. if you're doing something difficult. Um, yeah, yesterday morning I, I got up kind of early and rolled onto the bike mm-hmm. and did a hard bike workout. That's tough. Trying to throw down four minutes at 120 percent of FTP. <laughs> yeah. First thing in the morning. Oh yeah, that's four minute like four minutes at 5k pace essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just just right out of bed. Yeah. Ugh. 
And I, I bet too, and I have not seen any research on this, so I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. I bet if they like hooked up heart rate monitors to runners and said, mm-hmm. "All right, like jump into a tempo run, mm-hmm. wake up at 5:50 and jump in mm-hmm. at six, or warm up for five minutes and then jump in at 6:05." I bet they would find they could not even force themselves to get their oh, heart yeah. rate up. I'm sure. Because, because I mean, you, know, you and I have talked a great deal about the, the, the connection between the brain and the body and the way that the brain can, can govern the body and the, brain, the way the brain can hold the body back. Mm-hmm. It's too jarring for your body to go from completely rested and completely you know, low heart rate to... Yeah. Now it's going really, really hard and really, really, really fast. Yeah. Your body's capable of doing it because you think about evolution... You know, human beings have had to do that at certain points inside of our mm-hmm. evolutionary cycle. You had to wake up from a dead sleep and sprint. I mean, yeah. so, so, so it can happen. But yeah, your body is not, that's very jarring. And I was actually going <laughs> to so bring your brain's up, not going to totally let you do it. And to build on your kind of evolutionary perspective, I was going to say, I mean, humans were pretty much predatory animals. We didn't really have anything out there mm-hmm. hunting us for the last X whatever number of years. So mm-hmm. more and more, we were able to kind of say, look, we can wake up later. <laughs> we can kind of slowly. <laughs> Yeah. go into this because we're running to catch something not to evade something so right, we're not right. like your your dog who pops up and they're ready to chase the ball right, right. in a moment yeah uh, Percy Cerruti and I, I I actually told this story on a um, on a, a power up series workout so mm-hmm. um, and for those who don't know um, in uh, Train a Road is an online cycling platform um, that where you can put workouts and uh I write a several series of workouts on Trainer Road, and of course, you have the workouts themselves. You know, six by four minutes at whatever percentage with this much rest, um, and they're therefore indoor cycling. Um, but you also can put the text on the screen, and putting the text on the screen is what takes a long time. Right. Um, and I have to think about okay, there's a seven minute rest now. What am I going to talk about for seven minutes? I can't just let it play. Um, yeah. And, you know, not only because I, th- I think that would be sort of boring for the person who's doing it, but also because um, this is kind of a platform. Yeah. I have a captive audience, people staring at a screen. <laughs> you know, it's You're like, all mine. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, like, you know, but, but, I, but I told this story recently on, a, on one of those via text. But, um, you know, Percy Cerruti, who was the, the famous eccentric coach from the 1960s and, or 50s and 60s, uh, who uh, uh, laid the the, found, the foundation for like Arthur Lydiard and people mm-hmm. like that? Yeah, um, he was very experimental, which I appreciate. Yeah, um, and and like for example, he he, but he was experimental, but he would also come to the, to his experimentation sort of randomly. Mm-hmm. And so at one point, for example, he decided that that it was dangerous for people to eat and drink at the same time. Like, that was not something you should do. And so he made all the athletes that he coached, like, eat their cereal or their granola first thing in the morning without any sort of milk or, or liquid on it. And so it would take them, like, 40 minutes to eat breakfast because their mouths were so dry because they were having to chomp on all this granola without any liquid. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, one of his he, – he went through a period where he was, like um, – where he had people warming up by putting a whole bunch of, like, clothes on them and, like, wearing all this stuff um, – and and it didn't go well because they were they were you know getting way 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 too hot prior to right. the start of a race, um, and so he kind of then went in the opposite direction and said said okay no more warm ups, and he gathered all of his athletes when he was announcing no more warm ups he gathered all his athletes together on this porch and there was a cat sleeping on the porch, and he took a bucket of water and he dumped it on the cat, and the cat of course is 
Yeah, I, I bet that went well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just sprints across the lawn. He's yeah. like, "See, no more warm ups." Oh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and and he's like, "Clearly, the cat didn't need to warm up. You don't need to warm up either." Um, and and ultimately, I imagine he kind of came back to you know some sort of middle ground there. But but yeah. So I mean, it's possible for for you know us to go sprinting and for cats to go sprinting you know uh, from a dead sleep, but. But I would imagine it's very jarring and, and it's something that our brain would probably try to prevent us from doing unless we absolutely had to. Yeah, and to get back to the brain kind of body connection, and I'm, I'm taking us way off topic, but... We haven't gotten that, to the topic yet. Yeah, so okay. um, <laughs> uh, yeah, true. I guess you can't take a detour if you haven't gotten in the car yet. Um, you know, cats and most other animals don't have Achilles, and that's part of why we need to warm up. Mm-hmm. That's the physiological. So mm-hmm. you talked about um, the brain and the mental... Mm-hmm. Um, but that, this is all kind of pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I can appreciate the need of Achilles to warm up. So, yeah. Lord knows I need it right now. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about some news and research then. So, let, let, let's shift gears. But I, I, like I said, the whole reason why we got onto that is because I, I was thinking about what we had talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was bringing that research to bear on my own athleticism, on my own athletic endeavors. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think you, know, you and I have talked before about George the athlete and Patrick the athlete versus George the coach and Patrick the coach. And, and I inadvertently several months ago gave people the impression that, that I say think one thing as a coach and I do something totally different as an athlete. And I didn't mean to suggest that at all. Um, but what I am, the reason why I bring it up now is just to say that, that you know, we find research and we talk about these various sorts of things. And then I look at myself as an athlete and I say, oh, wait, this is what the research said. And I need to sort of reexamine some of my own practices as a result of, of, of what this research that we found and that, that, that we read and we discussed says. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, uh, let's talk about some, speaking of which, let's talk about some news and some research. We'll talk about the news. Um, uh, I'm going first, right? Yes. Patrick and I always talk about who's going to go first. And then we always forget once we actually begin the podcast, probably because we take these detours before we even get in the car. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, one piece of news to certainly mention here uh, was the conclusion of the Giro d'Italia. Um, the Giro d'Italia, one of the first three grand tours of, of the year, the, the Tour of Italy, um, along with the Tour de France and the Tour of, uh, of Spain, the Volta a España. Um, are the three grand tours, and they're the most prestigious races in all of cycling. Um, and they're all three weeks long with a couple of rest days built in there, about 20 or 21 stages. Now, quick tutorial for, for those of you who don't know how grand tours work, perhaps like my podcast partner. Um, <laughs> grand yeah. tours work by accumulated time. Um, and, and so it's whoever has the shortest accumulated time at the end of all 20 or 21 stages of the race. And so Chris Froome, like I said, won this race. Um, his accumulated time after 21 stages was 89 hours, 2 minutes, and 39 seconds. Um, and he won the race by that accumulated time by about 45 seconds or so um, over a guy from uh, the Netherlands named Tom Dumoulin. Um, now, generally speaking, if you and I, Patrick, are in a bike race and, and the whole bike race is kind of together and we sort of finish in a pack and there's 100 people in the race, and you finish 50th in the pack, and I finish 100th in the pack, but we're all still in the same pack, they're going to give every person, from the first person across the line to the 100th person across the line, the same time. That's interesting. And so even though you cross the, 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 the line 25 feet in front of me, three or four seconds in front of me, we're going to get the same time. And it's because they don't want people being super aggressive and fighting with one another and causing crashes to try and be the first person across the line for every little last second. So... <laughs> That my quick takeaway is that is the exact opposite of how NASCAR works. And oh, by the way, NASCAR they've had people die on the yeah. track. So, yeah. uh, and 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 I've said before that that cycling is much more like NASCAR than it is like running. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And and I I can appreciate after after being a cyclist and watching cycling races and becoming a fan of cycling why it is that people like NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I never really got that until but it's it's literally the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's cars racing one another, drafting, managing their fuel, all mm-hmm. that stuff. You know, I mean it's it's the same thing. Um, it's tactics, it's teams. Uh, but anyway, um, and so given the fact that that when the pack all finishes together, everybody gets the same time, what the people who want to win the race have to do is they have to find these strategic moments in the race, places where they can separate themselves from the pack and leave behind the other people who could potentially win the race mm-hmm. over the course of that three weeks. Right. And there's probably in any grand tour over the course of three weeks, over the course of 90 hours worth of racing, there's probably a dozen times, 12 times in the whole race where, hey, you might be able to get away here and get... Five seconds, ten seconds, twelve seconds, a minute on some of your competitors, mm-hmm. right? And so most of the race, and some people find this boring, and I can appreciate that. Most of the race is all the the, the lead contenders for the overall title just kind of looking at each other, yeah. and waiting for those strategic moments to come, right? Mm-hmm. So, fa- so so given all of that, um, fast forward to from the beginning of the Giro d'Italia until about stage nineteen. So three weeks into the race, very end of the race here. Um, only three stages left to go. Chris Froome, who won last year's Tour de France and the previous year's Tour de France, the winner of three or four Tours de France, um, and who won last year's Vuelta a España. So he's won you know both of those Grand Tours in very recent times. Um, he's about three or four minutes down. And given the number of strategic moments that were left in the race, and given how strong a bunch of other people in the race looked, mm-hmm. most people have kind of written him out. Now, you would think, oh, he's only three minutes down. He can totally make that up. But no, you can't because those strategic moments are rare, right? Right. And so so he, on the third to last stage, with about 50 miles to go on this very mountainous stage, um, and with three climbs left in the... And climbs are one of those strategic places. You can get away from somebody on a climb. Right. Um, um, With about three climbs left on the stage... He basically blasts up the climb, leaves the group behind, and goes off solo for 50 miles, for 80 kilometers, which in pro strategy. bike racing does not happen. Like, you get, you get such an advantage from being with your teammates and drafting off other people that going out solo in the mountains for 50 miles at a time, when you've already been racing hard for three weeks, it just doesn't happen. My understanding and my incredibly amateur understanding, since I'm not a cyclist, is that that is the equivalent to like the mile run in fifth grade where the one kid like sprints the first 200 meters. Mm-hmm. Like nobody does that after mm-hmm. like the age of 10 or right. like, after like that like first time <laughs> that they do it and make yeah. that mistake. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so 80 kilometers to go, the race ends on Sunday, it's Friday, he goes blasting out, holds the lead to the finish, takes the lead. Makes up the three minutes on Tom Dumoulin, on the guy who was in the head of the time, guy named Adam Yates. Adam Yates, the guy who had been leading the race up to that point, completely implodes and loses like 20 minutes to Chris Froome. Falls out of the top 10 and almost like down to 20th place. That by itself would have been a story on its own. Um, and but, but, but the real story of the day was Chris Froome, this brilliant Grand Tour cyclist. Um, ends up uh, having this monstrous ride, this epic ride, um, which is a, 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 tour, a term that's thrown around way too much in cycling. But uh, the, this, this massive epic ride here on the third to last stage uh, takes the lead and ultimately wins the race. Um, and so 
most people inside of cycling have said, and I agree, this is this is going to be like one of those days that will live forever. Like this is going to be one of those incredible days that you know people talk about fifty years from now. Oh, you remember right. when when uh, the the nineteenth stage of the two thousand eighteen Giro d'Italia when Chris Froome went on that eighty k solo raid uh, and took the lead and ended up winning the race. I mean that's how epic and and, and unheard of this type of move was. Uh, just absolutely amazing. Um, he now uh, he's won all three Grand Tours, which only a handful of people have done, um, and he is only the third person ever. Uh, in cycling history, who has held all three Grand th- Grand uh, Tour trophies at the same mm-hmm. time? Because he won the, the the Tour, then the Vuelta in 2017, and then now he's won the Giro in 2018. So the last three Grand Tours, he's won all three of them. Uh, the only other people to have done that is a guy named Bernard Hino, um and then Eddie Merckx. Eddie Merckx is widely considered um, by me and many other people to be the greatest all-time cyclist. Okay. Uh, and Bernard Hino is no slouch either. And so, so very rarefied country, uh, company he puts himself in. Now, I do need to say one thing about this uh, that, that must be said. Uh, and I, we talked about this maybe two or three months ago on this podcast. Um, he is currently under investigation for an adverse analytical finding at the end of the Volta a España for salbutamol, which is an asthma drug. Uh, it's an asthma drug that he takes, but he had it uh, well over what is supposed to be the legal limit um, of what you're allowed to take mm-hmm. um, at the end of one of the stages of the Vuelta Espana last year. And so they're in the process right now of litigating that and trying to recreate the conditions and trying to show that, that there was a natural reason why that occurred and all sorts of things. So there's a little bit of a cloud hanging over this. Right. Um, and uh, to those of you who maybe don't know, I mean, I've taken albuterol. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... Oh, it's a, a, not over the counter, but it's like mm-hmm. if you go to the clinic mm-hmm. and have asthma, they'll say, "Okay, mm-hmm. here, take some albuterol." Is, is, is that the same? So, salbutamol and albuterol is that the same drug? Okay, I, I thought you said albuterol. So it's salbutamol. It's that, sal, sal, salbutamol, but okay. I feel like that would be different then. Would it okay. be? I don't know. I think so. Yeah. Listeners, I, let us know if there's a yeah. difference between those two drugs. I mean, they're they're alliterative. They rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because um, probably a lot of the same stuff. The question yeah. is the difference in dosage, the right. difference in the amount of steroids in right. there. And we talked about uh-huh. it. You know, and we, and we talked about those doses and all that sort of thing uh, several several podcast episodes ago. And so there's no need to kind of kind of re go back over that. But but there is kind of a cloud hanging over. Right. He's going to go into the Tour de France. And so so we'll see how it do, he does mm-hmm. in the Tour de France with this cloud hanging over him, continuing to hang over him. Um, and with all the fatigue coming out of this very difficult Giro, um, if, if he's able to actually perform at the Tour de France. Uh, no less than Lance Armstrong on his podcast said, there's no way Chris Froome's going to win because before the Giro started uh, because the stress of this investigation is going to be too much on him. Right. Like, it's too, it's going to weigh him down too much. It's going to stress him out too much. And then, like, throughout the race, Lance Armstrong's like, see, I told you. Yeah, Chris Froome's is not a factor in this race. And then third to last stage, Chris Froome in a completely amazing way, uh, came out of nowhere and did that. Um, just to kind of make matters worse, uh, the last kind of major, major drug case in cycling uh, was Floyd Landis in 2006. He was a teammate of, uh, of Lance Armstrong. Who I think it should be worth noting, if I remember correctly, so mm-hmm. since I'm 0 for 1 on the albuterol thing, <laughs> I'll just throw this out there. Um, he had almost a similar win yeah. to Tour de France where he just blew away people exactly at what I was the end. Say. Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, and so so it's reminiscent of something that Floyd Landis did. Floyd Landis lost a lot of time uh, in the 2006 Tour de France and then on like the second or third to last stage just went on a 50-mile solo trek in the mountains 
and was able to get away from everybody and able to ultimately pull away and win the race. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then he returned an adverse uh, drug finding, and then he protested his innocence for like four or five years. Right. My wife read his book and said, "Oh yeah, he's totally innocent." Like my um, jail without bars or something. So like it's. Yeah, something I can't remember the name of it. And actually, to be honest, don't bother writing us and telling us what the name it is because I'm actually glad I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but but he was ardent about the fact that, that he did not do it. And then um, and and she, like a lot of people who read his book, was like was like I don't think he actually did it. And mm-hmm. and then he's like, yeah, no, I did it. Um, <laughs> and 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 I'm going to take all the rest of you down with me, including Lance Armstrong. <laughs> right. Um, but um, but uh, and so it's kind of reminiscent of that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people have said, well, you know, last time this happened, the person came. And so, yeah, Christopher, that, that kind of, in some ways, it's epic and major and, and, and totally awe-inspiring. On the other hand, because the Salbutamol thing is kind of hanging over Chris Froome right now, it kind of, you can't help but think about, mm, yeah, yeah, last time this happened, or last time something similar to this happened. So, yeah. Team Sky does have some really cool jerseys for the Tour de France. I'll say that. All so right. you know, so so putting everything else aside, Team Sky has has uh, has, has partnered with uh, Sky Ocean Rescue, um, and they have these jerseys that on the back of them have a gigantic orca. It's taking a word for it. It's super cool. In the world of of cycling jerseys, which you know only some of us think those are cool, um, but yeah, by all means, folks, check out the uh, the the Sky Ocean Rescue jersey for the Tour de France. So yeah, all right, tell us about some of your news. Yeah, so my news is uh, with uh, regarding to Sarah Hall. Sarah Hall. Um, so as listeners of this podcast have probably picked up on so far, George and I can be quite clairvoyant at times. Absolutely. Without a drop of sarcasm in that statement. Pro athletes, take note. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, get, so, in, get in our good graces and you will win major races. Yeah, so a few... That, that even rhyme. That could be like a mantra. That could be that's right. That needs to be our new tagline. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Sarah Hall had a, a rather per- impressive performance uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I'm kind of scrolling to find what the date was. Well, let me back up and say a few weeks ago we talked about how she had put in a great race, finished um, second, and mm-hmm. now the, the name is escaping me, at the Pittsburgh Marathon. The half marathon championship. So we talked about two weeks ago on the, on the Correct. Um, um, and, and looked strong at the finish and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And... What made that doubly impressive was she had just had several injuries at the end of 2017. Mm-hmm. They really kind of um, stunted her her, uh, her build up, and she comes out and what was in many ways like the, her first race back um, just blew away expectations. And in a stacked field, had, yeah, she had to drop out of Boston because of injuries. Correct. Said. Which I mean, Boston wasn't even that long ago. So yeah. I mean, you know, uh, not even two months ago she was dropping out of a race. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks ago, she was, I mean, putting on one of the most impressive performances we've mm-hmm. seen by a female distance runner in America, mm-hmm. period, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and George, you can expound this. She just had a very impressive performance. Well, yeah, so it's funny. So, so at the Ottawa Marathon, she finishes third, and she runs 226.20, um, which is a PR for her, and it actually moves her into the top 10 all-time of American women. Um, it's funny because we recorded the last news and research podcast two weeks ago. We recorded it on a Thursday. And like I said, we normally record on Sunday. We recorded it on a Thursday. Put it out on Sunday, and we got almost an immediate, or I got almost an immediate message from, from one of our listeners who's um, a giant fan of track and field and a really diligent listener who we appreciate that said, 
hey, did you see with Cheryl Hall what, what she ran in Ottawa today? Yeah. <laughs> and, and after we've been talking about, you know, how excited we were that she was back and how great she ran, uh, she goes out and runs 226 in Ottawa to finish third and to, to run a new uh, PB. Um, so just for context, by the way, um, Dina Castor ran the fastest ever, um, is the fastest ever woman. Uh, she ran 219 um, in London in 2006. Um, uh, she's an American record holder. But then you have Jordan Hesse, uh, Shalane Flanagan, Joan Samuelson, one of my all-time favorite runners, um, uh, Amy Cragg, Desiree Linden, Kara Goucher, uh, Laura Thweet, and then uh, Sarah Hall is now ninth uh, in the all-time all-time women's list. Now, to your point, because I think you're about to make this point, mm-hmm. um, so I just named those those top nine women of all time. Dina Castor, she still runs as a Masters. Jordan Hesse, active. Shalane Flanagan, active. Joan Samuelson, she was the 1984 Olympic gold medalist, you know, iconic runner. So obviously she's retired now, but she's looking to set age group records of 60-year-olds. So three of the top four active. Amy Cragg, active. Des Linden, active. Kara Goucher, kind of active, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. But like, probably starting to wind it down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura Thweet, active, right? Uh, and then, of course, Sarah Hall, active. So that's what? One, two... We'll say seven and a three, half out of nine. Yeah, yeah, seven and a half out of nine mm-hmm. active women, mm-hmm. right? Which is amazing and great and fantastic. Go U.S. women, man! And three of the top nine or four of the top nine have all been since 2017. Right. I mean that is phenomenal. Fantastic. And so the real question is, and what I found interesting with this is, what in the world is making mm-hmm. women's distance running so strong right now? Why are we seeing so many fast times in the marathon with our U.S. women? Mm-hmm. We're seeing a little bit of improvement with the men. Galen Rupp, you know, etc. But I don't think you know the success we're seeing the men, the American um, men in the marathon is nearly equivalent to what we're seeing with the women. Right. So then the question is why? Um, and there are several reasons, or, or kind of several candidates, and I'll kind of walk through them quickly before we can kind of offer our, our commentary. Um, one, just greater numbers. Mm-hmm. We have more w- women training for the marathon, therefore. Just the, kind of the law of average, the law of the greater sample size means we have more fast runners. Mm-hmm. More runners equals more fast runners. Mm-hmm. And you and you and I were talking about this this morning when we were running. Yeah. Um, and we weren't talking about it in this context necessarily, but and it's something that, that I've said numerous times on this podcast. The more people you have over five hours in a marathon, the more people you're going to have under three hours in a marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people at the front of the pack like to pretend like the, the people at the back of the pack had no impact on them, but they do. Yes. Um, the, the more people you can get involved with the sport at all different levels, the faster the fastest people are going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be more money, there'll be more status, there'll be more fanfare, and more people will get into the sport. Um, you know, you mentioned this morning, you were talking about how, how okay, so, so if you have more people who are running, then that kid who was going out for the soccer team, who maybe might not even make the soccer team, that he'll, rather than sitting on the bench on the soccer team, he'll go out for the track team instead. And come to realize, oh wait, he's a really talented track star. Right. Um, and then you mentioned this morning when we were running that, that, and then his dad won't be like, oh hey, but wouldn't you rather be sit on the bench on the track team, or on the, on the soccer team? Like, the, his parents and, and the community will be more supportive of, of his running. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes because people are they're participating in great numbers at all speeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I I will forever ardently believe um, the more people you have on over five hours, the more people you have under three hours. The more people you have over two twenty, the more people you have under two eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, keep going. And you can just walk it right down the line, and and we can 
So, yeah, and to me, the, the general point was more numbers equals faster runners. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's a, a many, many reasons why. One, like if you have a high school of 2,000 people, one, it's a greater likelihood that one of them is going to be a physical outlier that allows mm-hmm. them to be a spectacular athlete in mm-hmm. any sport. Mm-hmm. Then there's the, the greater ability to invest money into something mm-hmm. if there's more people doing it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you've talked about before about how Iron Man is now almost this, this huge money maker mm-hmm. and it's almost owned by like a giant was it a Chinese conglomerate? Yeah, it's a Chinese conglomerate. You know, mm-hmm. that wasn't happening in the 50s. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, the other thing is there's greater social currency. Yeah. Like, if, if you know, if, if you were in the 60s, I feel like, and you had a high schooler who said, hey, I am, you know, struggling to do my teenage job and I'm on the football team and I practice, I think people would say, okay, well, yeah, that's we, we, right. we value that. We hey, John, hey, Johnny, you can come in late because I know you right. play a football game. Yeah. Running? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's like, what? You know, well, I, yeah. don't, I don't understand. There's not the social currency there yeah. to really kind of build and, and encourage an infrastructure there yeah. to, to, make, to prioritize running or to right. prioritize training for running. Right. So then maybe even if you had you know, the same number of runners, they couldn't quite put as much into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll run four days a week instead mm-hmm. of seven. I'll, you know, right. um, not quite kind yeah. of invest myself. And, and, and now there's a much greater likelihood that like the manager at the local grocery store or wherever it is that that kid has their average school job, that guy probably runs 5Ks too. Right. Or at least there's a better chance of that. Or he knows people who do. Right. Or 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 the store is a is a sponsor of a local 5K or something like that. Right. But one way or another, that, that manager of that store... Who, like you say, sixty years ago would not have 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 let Johnny off to to mm-hmm. or let him come in late because he had a race that morning is much more likely to do that now. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so num- more numbers equals you know more runners equals faster runners. Is, I mean that that has a triage of, of, yeah. of, of and, and, possibilities. And, and, and to be fair and, and and to be thorough as well, you and I are actually talking about it in terms of all runners, mm-hmm. and I think I think. One of the articles that, that you and I kind of both looked at around this talked about it specifically with women. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about that as well. Um, and that there, there's, um, yeah, I did, I did a whole podcast a couple of years ago about women in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and specifically inside of sports or specifically inside of distance running, having more women and having more participation and, and breaking down the ideas that, that, um, there are certain sports that are okay for women and there are certain sports that are, like breaking down those things, um, I, I think specific to women mm-hmm. um, uh, have built up the women's athleticism, women's program, and, and women's marathon in the United States. So, anyway, um, I didn't want to. I didn't want the two guys here to, t- yeah. <laughs> to, take, to take the women's specific thing and be like, "Oh, yeah, that applies to everybody. All lives matter," you know. But and, and instead, instead, like, like really honor the fact that there's some real, some, some real, you know, women's specific stuff kind of woven into that too. Oh, a hundred percent. And to yeah. me, it's it's even in ways it's even bigger than that because. Um, you know, it, it, I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's a controversial statement to say we as a society have not invested as much in women's athletics as we do in male athletics. No. And, you know, even if you don't see that correlation directly in like your own individual life, maybe you don't have a sister who wants to be in athletics from a societal perspective, from a big picture perspective, that can really have a huge impact on what kids decide to do. Do they join the drama club or do they join the volleyball team or the track mm-hmm. team or whatever? Um, and that, I mean, that that all plays out. And so I'm actually, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, another big thing is, you know, 
uh, sorry, I'm slipping through my list here. Um, women are running more um, hard races. They're, you know, a lot of these top top you know athletes like Jordan Hesse, they're able to kind of say, all right, I want to really, you know, I can be sponsored by a Nike, and I can um, really kind of devote my resources to two hard races a year or maybe one hard race a year, and that gives more experience. So then over the years. Someone like a Shalane Flanagan, like her Boston this year, I don't know how many big marathons she's run, mm-hmm. but it's a lot more than, mm-hmm. you know, maybe what's, what, you know, the top women runners in the 80s were doing, mm-hmm. where it was, I think they had a shorter time window. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big thing is, and this is true for the, the men and the women, is more and more we're making the marathon the goal. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is it used to be the way you, uh, that a superstar track athlete's career played out is, they ran track in high school, they ran 5Ks. They ran track in college, they ran 5Ks. After that... Maybe a few 10Ks here and there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They spent age 22, or really, sorry, high school, age 15 to 32, mm-hmm. training for 5Ks, mm-hmm. most of which on the track. Mm-hmm. And then they said, okay, well, now that I'm 33, I'm not quite... I'm, I maybe lost a tad off my VO2 max, mm-hmm. and so now I'll bump up to marathon, mm-hmm. and so then I'll be able to just kind of mm-hmm. win the races where they're not nearly as many superstars or right. you know, elite athletes running. That's not the case anymore. We're seeing a lot more people like Galen Rupp that are making the decision to go for those longer races mm-hmm. you know, much sooner. And you see that with the women as well. Yeah. Now, now we've talked about that before too. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that with Pete Ray and we talked about that um, when we were debriefing um, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Nicole DiMercurio about that. The it's idea a great of, example, uh, yeah. Of just, just saying, you know what? I don't need to... I don't need to build... Let's go ahead and, and learn how the marathon works now. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go ahead and try one. And then maybe I'm not going to run my best one until I'm 32, but but at least I'm going to be experienced and, and, and well trained mm-hmm. throughout my 20s as well. Um, and so so yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, and, and you see that with a lot of African runners right now too. Yeah, I know we're talking about the uh, women U.S. marathoners, but a lot of African runners and and for them it's a money decision. Mm-hmm. Um, are are just skipping the track entirely at age 21 and 22 are going directly to, to to the marathon and trying to to get money on the roads. Um, I, I do think um, I was going to say something else about that too. Um, uh, oh, that, that Sarah Hall, and we're talking about Sarah Hall. She's a little bit of an outlier there, mm-hmm. um, but it's not because she followed necessarily that path. Um, you know, she didn't actually start running marathons until she was thirty-one, thirty-two years old, right. um, and and that's in large part, I, I surmise, because between her and her husband. Her husband was the pro runner in the family, and so so she kind of took a back seat for 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 his running goals. Um, and then when he retired, that kind of mm-hmm. you know took off the the lid, and, and she could she could start doing you know focus on her, and he could in turn uh, pay attention. You know, not coincidentally, they adopted her and her husband adopted four kids, mm-hmm. um, four sisters, four uh, from from Ethiopia, uh, right about the same time that he retired. Yeah, um, and so so. Now that he's retired and the run, his running is no longer the focus, he can help look after the kids and she can run and train and rest and recover and do all those things you have to do in order to be able to run 226. Um, so, so, so while I, I, I agree with, with that, she's actually Sarah Hall, who is our entry point to this whole conversation, is not an example of that. Right. Um, but, you know, that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't invalidate it. It just says that she's not exactly an example of that. Yeah, and, and you almost kind of lead into to the next point where it, even if she individually maybe doesn't is an example of that, mm-hmm. the people she's training with mm-hmm. maybe yeah. um, is, is an example of that. And yeah. I think that's another factor into this is we have a lot more 
um, you know, groups for elite athletes to train with. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, it's no, no longer where you graduate college, all right, well, if you're not for the Olympics, then best of luck to you. Mm-hmm. You, know, um, you know, we have a lot of groups like the Nike groups in, in Portland, Oregon. We have a lot more groups in Boulder, Colorado, in D.C., et cetera. Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Yeah, we have, you know, mm-hmm. Zap Fitness. Mm-hmm. And so that just only increases the amount of time that these athletes can dedicate towards marathoning. Mm-hmm. which may not be as big of an impact on the 5K necessarily because, like I said, they were already kind of training for the 5K in high school, college, et cetera, and just kind of extending that out. Yeah. But for the marathon, you really need those extra years to put in the more mileage and kind of switch gears from the 5K to the marathon. And, and to have a few bad races. Yes. You know, we, 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 we've talked about several times about, you know, and we, we, we first talked about it after I had a rough race in Chicago last year, that you have a bad 5K, you're just like, ah, oh, well, that sucked, and you go out the next weekend and have a better one. You have a bad race in the marathon, well, that sucked, you have to wait about six months for you can go again. <laughs> Minimum. Yeah. For a lot of the yeah. pros, you got to wait even longer. Yeah, and so, so it's like um, you, have, you have two or three bad races in a row or two or three lackluster races in a row, and that's three years of your career. Mm-hmm. Uh, two or three years of your career and so so yeah you, you need that time to have those bad races to learn the race to make the mistakes to learn the lessons that you can then apply in your future races yeah. and then one last potential is the marathon obviously you can kind of PR for a bit for much longer mm-hmm. and it kind of gets into your point where you, you need mm-hmm. more swings of the bat mm-hmm. so if you start at 20 if you have people starting at 25 instead of 35 let's say they don't necessarily improve mm-hmm. but it does give more people that were kind of at the plate swinging the bats, mm-hmm. then in turn you're going to have, right. um, you know, more home runs, so to speak. Yeah. I, yeah, I think the macro point or the, the thing that kind of unites all those kind of different sub points is the idea that, that more people, bringing more people, getting more people involved, um, you, you see this kind of really incredible mm-hmm. uh, advance. Um, I that, agree 100%. Yeah, that, that actually segues into to the next news story that I wanted to mention real quickly. Uh, and that's about a Texas high schooler named Reed Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, Reed Brown ran 359.3 for the mile this week. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, did it what was called the Festival of Miles in St. Louis. Um, and uh, that's a race, as you can guess by the name, where there's a whole bunch of mile races of different levels. Um, and if you run four laps around the track, as, as a lot of folks know, that's 1,600 meters. A mile is actually 1,608 meters. Um, and so you actually have to run that extra eight meters at the very start. And so it's literally like one to two seconds of difference, but there's a difference between a mile and to say, oh, I've run a sub four mile and I've run a sub four 1600 meters. But anyway, yeah. it's not often that you actually have people who get to run the mile. Yeah. Um, more often it's people who run the 1600 meters or even the 1500 meters. Um, and so anyway, so he goes to this race where there's a whole bunch of things called the Festival of Miles in St. Louis. Uh, and he finished actually third in the race. He ran 359.3 as, as, a, as a high schooler. Uh, from Texas. He became the 10th U.S. high school runner ever to break four minutes um, as a high schooler. Uh, it's actually the fourth ever uh, fastest in the United States, which goes to show how many people run 359. Right. Um, you know, they just squeeze under. So he ran 359.3. He was the 10th person, but the fourth fastest ever. Um, but the, the point I wanted to make, and it's related to the point you just made, is how the, the pace of these are, are picking up. Yes. Um, so I was in high school in the late 80s and early 1990s. I was graduating from high school in 1992. And when I was in 1992, everybody knew the names of the three guys, three guys at that time, who had broken four minutes in the mile. They were Jim Ryan, Tim Danielson, and Marty LaCour. Um, and Tim Danielson um, 
Jim Ryan and Mario LaCorey had all done it in the 1960s. They did it in 1965, 1966, mm-hmm. and 1967. And then nobody did it in the 70s, nobody did it in the 80s, nobody did it in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, no high schooler from the United States did it. And so they were kind of these mythic people. Um, and then along came Alan Webb in the early 2000s. And, and everybody's like, oh, he's going to be the next person to break four minutes. He broke four minutes indoor, then goes out and runs 353 as, as a high school senior outdoors uh, mm-hmm. and, and breaks Jim Ryan's record, which is still actually mind-blowing to me that, yeah. that a high school runner from Virginia can go out and run 353 as a high school senior. Um, Alan Webb then went on to a pro career, as you probably know, and is now the American record holder in the mile, um, has run 346, I think it is, isn't it? That's, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, so he's now the American record holder in the mile uh, overall, not just the high school record holder. But anyway, so, so, so as of 2001, there were four. Then since 2011, there have been six more. Um, in 2011, you had Lucas Verbicus, who uh, ran, 359, uh, ran 359. Um, Lucas Verbicus um, uh, went on to a triathlon career, actually, and then had a really devastating bike crash um, that broke all sorts of bones in his body, and I don't know what he's been up to now. Um, um, in 2015, you had Matthew Matone ran 359. In two, th- uh, 2015, you had Grant Fisher, who ran 359. Mm-hmm. In 2016, Drew Hunter ran 357. Uh, in 2016, Michael Slagowski also ran 359. Um, and then, of course, now in 2018, you have Reed Brown, who ran 359. Uh, did I say 259? Second, I meant 359. Uh, 359.3. Um, and so you have you know this huge pickup of pace. Um, on top of that, there are three other high schoolers this year, 2018. A guy named DJ Principe, a guy named Sam Worley, and a guy named uh, Cooper Tier have all run four flat. Haven't broken four, but they've all run four flat, so four zero zero. Um, and so, so yeah, it's kind of incredible the the pace at which we are now uh, as a country breaking four minutes with our high school boy runners. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of you know. Part and parcel, the same thing that we were talking about before, that, that more people are doing it, it's getting more accepted, people are training more, uh, and as a result of that, um, uh, or at least the, the results of that can be seen in how quickly um, um, our high school boys are running the mile. Um, what do you guys say about that? Yeah, uh, it, it, like the women, it's, it's not just fascinating to hear about this incredible achievement this individual had, but also to think about what it says about um, you know running in general. I mean, you mm-hmm. talk about when you were in high school, you had three runners who had ever broken it as, right. a, as a high schooler, yeah. and now we have three per year. Yeah. Or, or this past year, I shouldn't say yeah. per year. We, 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 we might end up with four this year. Right. I mean, um, we, we've, had, we've had one guy run 359, three others run four flat. Yeah. I mean, yeah, incredible. And, you know, there's, they're, like the women, the question is, well, why? You know, and, and there are probably several reasons. Mm-hmm. One, better coaching. Mm-hmm. Right? I imagine I agree. this guy did not receive... Instructions from his cat or from his coaches that said, "Hey guys, here's how we're going to train. Watch this cat." You know, he probably didn't receive instructions from his cat either. Yeah, sorry, I, I messed that one up. But you know, you see the point I'm making, right? Where the yeah. 50s and 60s there's a lot of like, you know, don't drink water while you run because right. you know, right. we're going to toughen you. Like it was so primitive. It was so. I mean, they're just starting. They're having to just form the base knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, and now we have, you know, our top coaches know so much more yeah. than we used to. So right. not only do our top coaches know so much more. Now our top coaches can share with a lot of people. Totally agreed. When I was in high school, I remember um, there's a high school. I won't, I won't say the name, you know, but the the team was coached by just the soccer coach mm-hmm. who knew nothing about running, mm-hmm. and so like he would he, he didn't know what to say, nothing. Mm-hmm. And then they hired 
someone who ran in college and kind of, and was like a mm-hmm. state champion in high school and really kind of knew what he was talking about. He knew about periodization. He knew hard days hard, easy days mm-hmm. easy. They went from not making state to finishing second mm-hmm. within a calendar year. Yeah. The exact same people. Like that's, mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. And what other sport do you go from minus a superstar moving to town? Mm-hmm. You know, go from, oh, we don't even qualify for state in the top like 60 mm-hmm. or whatever, or how many qualifiers state? I think it's more like 30, to, yeah, we're going to be second. Right. You know. Um, and then, to add on even I, more I, I, to that. So, so to, to, to underline your point, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I think there's a wide variety of reasons for that, not least of which is the internet and social media, that knowledge about like this podcast, like knowledge about how to train is spreading more and mm-hmm. spreading to more people. But yeah, I mean, back in the day, the soccer coach or the football coach were really, like, all right, go out and run. All right, yeah. now we're going to stretch. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that literally And was by the way, stretching was like, I, it, it was... So first of all, football got their stretching um, protocol from the military, mm-hmm. and yeah, if you ever cross country it. runners got their stretching protocol from football. <laughs> but they, it's not the same thing. Yeah. And if you ever watch, if you ever watch a football team stretch, it's kind of a joke. Like yeah. literally, it's like one, two. I mean, it's like it's it's more about like it's more of a team building opportunity. Than yes, it's else. more about like yeah, it's more about like hitting yourself on the helmet and stuff like that. Yeah, well, in yes, it's more about <laughs> learning to follow orders and do things as a team yeah, than yeah. to actually like exactly. stretch your muscles. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So a our top level people know a lot more than they did in the past. Yeah. Um. Two, we have more people who know about this because we have more people training for marathons and more mm-hmm. people really kind of researching this. Mm-hmm. Three. Our top-level people are able to share their knowledge mm-hmm. and really kind of spread knowledge to other coaches. Yeah. Uh, four, the runners themselves are, can be like, hey, I love this running thing. I'm going to Google right. uh, all, all these people. Like, I spent most of my high school reading books by and about Roger Bannister mm-hmm. and all these different characters like Arthur Lydiard. Mm-hmm. So I could kind of almost have my own college course mm-hmm. just from going to the library, going, to, going online and really kind of piecing together what I need to know Right. To put together a good training program and then kind of incorporate it into my own life. Right. And you know, and, and and I feel like we talk about Pete Ray way too much, but but he mentioned that too. Mm-hmm. He said that, that that one of the reasons why there's been so much improvement is because people now know what other people are doing. Yeah. Um that you you can go online, you can see what your competitors are up to, you know, via Strava or whatever else happens to be. But like, yeah, when I was in high school and you were graduating in two thousand four. Close, yeah, oh six, oh six, okay, two thousand six. So I'm fourteen years ahead of you in school, mm-hmm. and then and so the people who are graduated right now are mm-hmm. twelve or more years, mm-hmm. okay. And so so um, so if you kind of like like look at people now versus when I was in high school, and then you use you as like the the midpoint benchmark, right. if you will. Like I literally had Runners World magazine, right? That's it. I had Runners World magazine, and then and then Running Times a little bit. Um, and and runners, which I love me some runners world, but let's be honest, half of those articles are advertisements. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I mean, they have to make money. Like it's yeah. just the nature of the beast. And and eventually, like Runners World, when I was in when I was in, in college, Runners World kind of made the shift into a general fitness magazine, mm-hmm. um, and and it became much more about like here's how you can you know complete a half marathon by running two days a week and playing tennis. Right. You know, I mean, that's that's just sort of the, the direction they decided to go in. And now I think that Runners World is kind of hit or miss. Like, like you can, there'll be a really good, solid, particularly online, there'll be a really good, solid research-based article about training. And then there will be something like, there was an article in this month's Runner's World that I was looking at last night. It's like, so-and-so trains on sand every now and then. You ought to train on sand. And it's like, no. Like, and they, so, and they don't offer any reason for that or anything else, just except to say, hey, this is something kind of fun and different. Why don't you run on the sand? I don't want to run on the sand. 
and and there's not a good reason for me to run on the sand and and yeah anyway um, so yeah they're, they're kind of hit or miss now mm-hmm. um, but then they but then the the opening the the very first thing in um, in Runner's World this month after on the inside cover is a big picture of Yuki Kawauchi which mm-hmm. is awesome yep. is is a a um, is a photo essay of Edward Cheserick and, and it was brilliant. Um, and you know Edward Cheserick, uh, one of the if not the most successful NCAA runner of all time, mm-hmm. um, and, it, and it's great. It was beautiful. I followed him for like five years, um, and so yeah. Anyway, I don't know why I got off on on Runner's World, but no, you did because and you actually hit on my next point. So um, once again, the clairvoyance of our podcast host <laughs> here, um, you know. So I was I'm I'm a great I'm so glad you mentioned the. The, the part about how I was kind of the, the, the middle of now and what you grew up with. Mm-hmm. So you grew up pre-internet. I'm kind of overgeneralizing, but you right. were Runner's World magazine. No, I was very much pre-internet. I was the version of the internet, which was nothing but message boards. Okay. And people still didn't know how to react. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is, like, I can remember, like, like I would be a high school runner, and, like, someone would, like, make a post that was, like, Patrick Ollinger doesn't have any heart. And, like, people would, like, agree because, like, I'd struggle in the race or something. Mm-hmm. Now, as an educator, you'd be like, no, 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 this is trolling. Like, we're taking action. We're right. going to, like, stop this. Right. That was still when we were kind of figuring out the dangers of social media and message boards. And so it was still a lot of, like, we're not really, like, I don't know, like, how is, like, how good is this? How do I sort out the, the, the chief, chief from the wheat, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I feel like kids are much, much more savvier to say like you know what no that guy's a troll i'm not listening to him mm-hmm. i'm going to this guy over here who really kind of knows what they're doing mm-hmm. and it just it just kind of builds on itself so not only do we have more information available we have higher we have grown up more in an information age we're able to we have greater information literacy it's called yes yeah. there we go I, I think young people do i think old people don't i agree <laughs> one zillion percent yeah witness the so-called fake news phenomenon yeah um, yeah actually it's funny you mentioned that and this is this is the last digression we're going to take here, but but I I, guess, I, I was yeah good point. I, I was at the the Georgia Cyber Academy graduation yesterday um, because my sister in law, of whom I am eminently proud, yeah, um, was was graduated from the Georgia Cyber Academy and is headed off to Kennesaw State University this fall. Um, but uh, way to go, Jesse Ann. But um, the the valedictorian uh, stood up and talked about we need to have good information literacy. We need to be able to understand the difference between fact and fiction on the internet. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, I think at the very least that awareness is there uh, mm-hmm. among the younger generation. Whereas, uh, um, I think older folks see something in print, and they're like, "Oh, it's in print. It must be, you know, it must have gone through filters." Right. You know, there's no way you can't just put something on the internet. You know, you, to, can, you can't just say something. There has to be. Well, yeah, actually, you can. To um, quote the uh, wiz- the ever wise Michael Scott, Wikipedia is the best thing in the world because anybody can put what they want on there. Therefore, you know it no, must be the best there is. Right. Um, so yeah, so those are all reasons why we think there there are more um, you know sub four minute milers in high school. Mm. I would say another thing is better racing opportunities. Mm. Um, yeah, this guy from Texas that went to a festival of miles in St. Louis. Exactly, yeah. and a that means you can find good weather races, mm-hmm. right? Um, I imagine uh, Jim Ryan was a uh, Kansas, correct? Yeah. You're not rolling around a Kansas no. summer track going, well, good luck breaking four. Right. Um, and then you can then kind of, there's a networking effect. You say, hey, you know yeah, what? Exactly. I'm running sub four, or I'm running 405 in Kansas, 404. Mm-hmm. This guy in Seattle's running 404. This guy in St. Louis, let's all get together yeah. and let's, let's do this. Totally. 
Um, and then one other thing I want to add, there used to be a list of sub four minute milers, American sub four minute milers, just period, not like mm-hmm. high schoolers, but period. Mm-hmm. And I can't find it. it actually was taken down. I, I did finally find the link and I got mm-hmm. an error page here searching. Yeah. But when you do, if we were somehow to find it, you can see that since about 2008, mm-hmm. the number of sub four minute milers has it's skyrocketed. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's. You know, if you're looking for an, an example of what an exponential growth looks like, mm-hmm. this is it right here. Right on. Very cool. Uh, not to be outdone, um, uh, late-breaking piece of news that was, that was brought to our attention. Uh, there was a, a, a girl, a high school senior named Caitlin Collier, um, who just yesterday, as a matter of fact, so, so uh, recorded the fourth fastest 800 meters ever for an American high school girl. She ran two flat, 0.85. Uh, the record is 159.51 set by Mary Kane in 2013, so fairly recently, right? right. Um, and she ran the fourth fastest ever, 800 ever for, for, for an American high school at two flat. Um, yeah, now one kind of last final thing we'll say about these high schools running fast, and then we'll move into our research since, geez, how are we this far along anyway? But, uh, but um, is to say that, that um, it is worth considering and continuing to consider um, that these folks are running this fast in high school, and then what happens in college? What happens mm-hmm. uh, beyond college? Um, and and whether this we, we know that people running faster in high school will translate to people running faster in college will translate to pros running faster in the United States. Like I, I I'm certain of that. Will uh, this particular kid will Reed Brown run faster in college? And then run faster as a pro. So, so he's one of the he's he's the best right now. He's the best miler in the United States at age eighteen, right? Is he going to be the same at age nineteen, age twenty, age twenty four, age twenty five? Mm-hmm. Um, that remains to be seen. And I think there's there's uh, I hope that there'll be some longitudinal studies of okay. So what happens to these these earth shattering kids um, when they when they go a little bit farther? Alan Webb, like I said, went on to be the American record holder in the mile, um, but and I, I, I say this cautiously, most people would, would, would argue that Alan Webb didn't quite become the world beater that a lot of us thought he would. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that that we won't go into. But, but, so, so, so there's some sort of question. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the great runners um, when I was in high school was a girl named Melody Fairchild, um, who was from Colorado. And she was brilliant. She ran under 1640 at the U.S. Cross Country Cha- the Foot Locker National Cross Country Championships. So, Gosh. 5K girl in high school ran 1638, I want to say. Um, and, I just, and I just want to also point out, those Foot Locker races, at least traditionally, mm-hmm. they have intentionally made them hilly. Yeah, yeah, they're not, yeah, they're not flat, fat courses, yeah. And so... Not like grass and mud, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a different animal. But she went off to college and, and didn't really do a whole lot in college and didn't really do a whole lot afterwards and now has actually found a niche in... In mountain running, mm-hmm. which is like which is like a subset of trail running, mm-hmm. um, where you literally race up the sides of mountains, mm-hmm. um, and and that's where she's she's qualified for multiple U.S. mountain running teams, mm-hmm. um, and but she didn't you know she didn't go on to win girl medals or, or even make Olympic finals or Olympic teams the way that a lot of people thought she would based on how she ran when she was in high school. Um, Mary Kane, who I just mentioned, uh, who ran one fifty nine in two thousand thirteen, I was a giant Mary Kane fan, and. Um, yeah, she's from New York, and and she actually made. I want to say she made the World Championships final in the fifteen hundred as a senior in high school, and hasn't really done a whole lot since then. Um, so I do kind of want to you know add a note of caution that that yeah we're excited 
for for Reed Brown, but we're cautiously excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I wish him continued success. Yeah, and I would say I think most runners. So I can tell you when I think of the top runners in Georgia when I was around, Ben Hubers was the guy, mm-hmm. and he from went a teacher. From a keychain, and he he went on coached he, by our friend Travis Gower, who now coaches at Walton High School in Marietta. And yeah, and to in kind of to your point, he now uh, I think became the first person to break four minutes in the mile from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the folks that were running with him, um, I've seen around, and they they don't know, run. Not only that, when they couldn't run the win the Turkey Trot five k, you know, it's right. it, and there's it's not just physiological, it's mental, it's do I want to, you know, motivation that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's talk about some research here. We talked a lot about news here, so let's talk a little bit about research. You're going to go first on the research. Sure. Um, so mine came from uh, Alex Hutchinson. So speaking of like Runner's World, he was you know one that really kind of uh, brought up the Runner's World, the credibility of Running World, so really kind of made them a, a phenomenal um, resource for many left. Um, <laughs> he uh, published an article titled uh, "The Surprise." And, and that okay. So quick note on him. Now he's at Outside Online. And I was talking with somebody this week about how Outside Online is just killing it lately. Yeah. I mean, you want, you, you want to read some really good, solid journalism around distance running and endurance sports and, and a lot of research and stuff. You know, kind of make a weekly appointment and check Outside Online. I mean, they got some great stuff right now. Yeah, yeah. phenomenal. And every, I mean, every media company is only as good as the, the, the editors and reporters mm-hmm. that, are, that are creating the content, the content creators. For sure. And they are, I mean, I hadn't even heard of them a year ago. Now they are like appointment right. reading. Yeah. Um, he published an article titled The Surprising Science Behind Why Easy Days and Hard Days Make a Difference in Your Workout. And I'm sure listeners to this podcast or people who just know, George and I know, we constantly say, take your heart, make your hard days hard and your easy days easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, even, and even within workouts, make the hard parts hard and the easy parts easy. Right. Yeah. And we constantly reference um, you know, the work by Matt Fitzgerald for, for folks who are more like quantitatively you know, academic-minded. Um, for folks who just want a bit more of a rule of thumb, the basic rule of thumb is 80% of your training should be easy, 20% hard. You know, and those are just kind of some maxims you'll hear mm-hmm. over and over again kind of throughout our, you know, our episodes, et cetera, and, that's, and, and, and our and conversations. That's, and that's true runners. Triathletes can get away with a little bit more hard. Okay. Um, cyclists can get away with a little bit more hard because it doesn't beat you up as much. Swimmers can get away with a lot more hard because it doesn't beat you up as much. But anyway, yeah, keep going. Right. Um, so uh, Alex brought attention to a new study um, that was led by a team uh, at the Ball State University in which they looked at a group of collegiate distance runners. Okay, so these are not, you know, college freshmen that they, you know, duped into completing a study. These are trained athletes that are competing, you know, at the NCAA <laughs> level, right? Um, the co- and they looked at the coaches and the athletes and they, they sent both the questionnaire and they, and they asked, first they asked the coaches, they said, tell us on a scale of one to 10 how hard you want this workout to be. Okay, and so on the easy days, the coaches would say, you know, one or two, you know, and the average co- coach or the average effort level came out to be one and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay, then they asked the athletes, same thing, same easy days, scale of one to ten, how hard was that? Okay, athletes came out and said, you know, average of three and a half or so, right? Uh, and then on the hard days, they found a similar disparity. They asked the coaches, how hard do you want this to be? And they could just say, oh, this seems to be like an eight or nine. Like, we really need, you know, an A effort here. you got to go. You need to be tired at the end of it. I mean, you really need to be working for this. Grabbing your knees. Um, yeah, you need to be grabbing your knees, kind of heavy breathing. This is not um, something you necessarily look forward to. Mm-hmm. Unless you're like an adrenaline junkie, you really kind of like this stuff. <laughs> um, and then they asked the athletes, how hard was that? And they said, 
roughly about a 6.2. So you can see on the easy days, the athletes were given a response that was much harder than the coaches were intended. Mm. The coach, and then on the hard days, the athletes were given uh, a much lower perceived effort than the coach wanted. Mm. Okay? And this is kind of similar to some previous findings, uh, which looked at kind of the subjective perception of effort in, in training. And they found that in the previous study that athletes were, were taking their, hard, their easy days too hard and then therefore could physically not complete the hard days as hard as they needed to. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case with the collegiate athletes. I just, I just don't know. But I think that it just continues to hammer home the point that, you know, with, with each passing year, the, the maximum of run your hard days hard and your easy days easy, it, it seems to become more and more true with each passing of it, with, with, with each, you know, piece of evidence that we get. Mm-hmm. You know, in my own running, to me, sometimes I know that sometimes I'm like, all right, hard days hard, easy days easy, and then I'll have a bad workout Thursday. So maybe I have to cut out a one-mile rep or something. And so I'll say, all right, Friday, I want to make up for that, and I'm going to run three more miles, or I'm going to run it at tempo pace or maybe a little quicker, right? And a lot of it is about having the confidence to say, when it's time to go hard, I can go hard, so therefore, this easy day, I can take it nice, easy, and relaxed. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it also is kind of you know, letting go of kind of the backwards math where we think, okay, you know, my training is equal to the sum of the parts. So therefore, you know, if I just give a medium effort every day, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is equals to a greater sum than kind of this, this altered um, you know, training. So whatever, whatever the actual reason is for this kind of disparity between you know, how hard we should be going... On these two days, it, it's it's pretty interesting to think about, and I know it's a challenge that a lot of athletes and coaches struggle with, not only in running but also, as you mentioned, in cycling and swimming. No, for sure. I mean, you know, and, and I mean, there's a, there's a lot of takeaways as far as I'm concerned. Um, the biggest one, and I think this is sort of the 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 takeaway from the study, and this is the one that the the I imagine that the and I didn't look at it. This is your piece of research, but mm-hmm. the uh, the the. The one that the authors probably mentioned was that, that, yeah, there's a breakdown between what coaches want you to do and what athletes actually do. Right. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, hey, some of those those of you who I am constantly getting on to about going too hard on your hard days and too easy on your easy days, some of y'all can take some solace in the fact that, hey, this is a pretty common thing. Mm-hmm. You know, even with these elite collegiate athletes, they tend to do that too. And we even talked about that with Nicole. Yeah. yeah she said, yeah, I did too. not realize that we were hammering the easy days until got to zap and they're like, look, you got to... You got to back off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so, yeah, take some solace in that. Um, that, that. That's a common, common mistake. But at the same time, it's still a mistake. Um, and so, so the, the other side of it for me is that, okay, well, as an athlete, I can imagine how somebody would take some solace in the fact that that's a common mistake and that's what, that's what athletes tend to do. But, but as a coach, I'm like, that. but that's still a mistake. That's still the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of, it's, it's distressing to me because it makes me feel like the, the constant messages that, that, that we have about taking your easy days easy and your hard days hard and the reasons behind that and the, and the purposes of that, um, those messages, when they actually kind of filter down to athletes, not only might get lost, but, but we're actually fighting against Athlete culture, if yeah. you will, um, like totally. like yeah, that 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 it's not just it's not just an individual thing that hey I told Patrick to go easy and he didn't go easy enough, 
mm-hmm. or I hey, I told Patrick to go hard and he didn't go hard enough. It's mm-hmm. not just a problem with Patrick. It's the the problem could also be that I'm telling Patrick to do that, but he's surrounded by a bunch of knuckleheads and hammerheads that that are going too hard on the easy days and going too 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 uh, easy on their hard days. And maybe have the same insecurities, and so then we yeah. kind of yeah. And and to put it in a nutshell, and, and putting aside all the stuff we've talked about before, and we've talked about on this podcast on several other times, putting aside like the physical benefits that you get from running easy, um, and, and putting aside the fact that that by going at a zone two pace, but going at an easy pace, sixty to ninety seconds slower than your marathon pace, two minutes per mile slower than your five k pace, putting aside the fact that that gives you physiological benefits that then can apply in your race, mm-hmm. putting that whole thing aside. If you run your hard, if you run your easy days too hard, you're not going to be able to run your hard days hard enough. And, and that's a big killer. Yeah, and 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 what ends up happening is you end up doing all of your training at this gray, useless area mm-hmm. where it makes you tired, but you don't really get any physiological benefit from it. Right, um, or minimal physiological benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so so. That you you need to take your if for no other reason if even if you don't buy it even if you don't believe me when I say hey you're gonna get faster as a marathoner by running ninety seconds per mile slower than your marathon pace even if you don't believe me even if you're like oh well that's nothing doesn't really be training with that even if you don't believe that believe this <laughs> that that if you run too hard on your easy days you're not gonna be able to run you're not gonna have the physical or the mental reserves to run hard enough on your hard days to actually make a difference. Um, and and your hard days are not going to be as beneficial to you because you've run too hard on your easy days. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's yeah, it's clearly. I mean, this and also like like I said, it's 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 also somewhat comforting because okay, that's one of the reasons why it's hard for the message to get through. Mm-hmm. Good to know because because there's there's almost like an athlete culture or the athletes in groups. And I've actually seen that now yeah. that I think about it. I think about my athletes who who seem to be allergic to doing easy days easy and hard days hard. Yeah. Um, and and they tend to all kind of cluster together and run together, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. Other thoughts on it? Uh, the one thing I'll add, and I think this is, you know, it, it, I think what happens. So, it, like, if you were to talk to somebody and say, "All right, we want to run a marathon. What's the best plan? Best plan is to run a relatively even pace, right? Mm-hmm. You don't go blasting out mile one, right. walk mile two, blast mile three. <laughs> and we 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 think that applies to the macro, yeah. right? And it just doesn't. The right. macro, it really is more about, no, today we are working this system. Right. We are introducing a stimulus mm-hmm. at, with the goal of your body adapting in this way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we really need right. you to hit these paces. Right. Um, and to me, yeah, to me it's a double it, it, it's a double whammy. One, as you mentioned, I see athletes running their easy days too hard. So then they physiologically don't have the aerobic base because mm-hmm. it takes you have to run at that slower pace for your for your um, your, your your legs and your, and your aerobic system to really kind of build that endurance. Mm-hmm. And then it also means maybe their hard days aren't hard enough. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, you know, if if you miss out on one rep in a hard workout, like that's it. You didn't lose twenty percent of the value. You lose ninety percent of the value. Right. Because the hard workout, the entire value is that last 10, 15% or so mm-hmm. yeah. where, you're, where you're dying. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, and said another way, I mean, if, and, and we've talked about this very specifically on this podcast, um, you know, not too long ago, only a few months ago, that if there's five things that you're training, you have to go five different paces or five different intensity levels to, tra- to, to train each of those five things. Yes. Right? If you're going your hard day, your easy days too hard, and that brings down 
the, the difficulty of your hard days and makes them too easy, you're essentially going to be going one pace all the time. You're training one thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the one thing that's trained at that sort of middle ground zone three pace. Mm-hmm. And that's leaving four of the five primary components that you need to be training on the table. And honestly, the more important ones. Yeah. Or relatively. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The ones that can make a more profound di- difference yeah. in your race performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about a different piece of research. So, last piece of research from the last thing we'll talk about today. And this is actually a little bit of a digression from, from strictly from endurance sports, but it's, but it's something that That's has... going to be the title of this podcast. <laughs> <one where I'm laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than, rather than news and research 6-10-2018, <laughs> it's going to be digressions 6-10-2018. Yeah. Now, I've often said that if I ever wrote a book, it would be called digressions um, or reiterations, but That's anyway. That's fantastic. Um, anyway, anyway, yeah, you can, you can see how my classes go. Um, but um, uh, the piece of research I want to talk about was, was a replication of the so-called marshmallow test. Now, um, some of y'all who are listeners, particularly if you majored in psychology or if you took a psychology course when you were in, in college, are familiar with a test out of Stanford in the 1960s called the marshmallow test. And we're kind of getting into my day job here because I talk about the marshmallow class uh, test in one of the classes that I teach um, at Georgia Gwinnett College. Um, but it was uh, carried out by a, by a professor there, a guy named uh, Mitchell. Um, and Mitchell and his associates... Um, they uh, offered kids uh, either marshmallows or cookies or pretzels. Um, and, and over time, it's become known as the marshmallow test. But they said, we're going to give you something that you want, right? Mm-hmm. A marshmallow, a cookie, a pretzel, an animal cracker, or a pretzel. Which, uh, those of you who have kids or maybe have younger siblings or, mm-hmm. or have been in charge of kids, you know that candy to kids is like money to adults. Oh, yeah. Like, they pursue yeah. it with the passion that... Adults pursue money. Like yeah. it is not like me or you. Yeah. Like, All right, fine. I'll pass on jelly beans. I mean, right. with kids, it is. Right. They have a lot less control in their life. Right. And so it really is like if their mom offers them ice cream, they don't have a choice when they can eat ice cream. So it's like, oh my gosh, this is yeah. a big deal. And, and like a and, and, a, and an adult too, if you were to if you were to and so this is what they did, and then we'll kind of get back to that point. So what they did is they 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 said here you can have this marshmallow, this cookie, or this pretzel now, or if you wait for a few minutes and don't eat this one. I'll come back and I'll give you a few of them, like three or four. I'll give mm-hmm. you more. Right. Um, and then the the tester left the room and left the kid in there with the cookie. Cookie sitting on the table facing the kid. Right? Mm-hmm. And then they came back roughly about 15 minutes later and said, okay, did the kid eat the cookie or did the kid not eat the cookie? And, of course, if they if they didn't eat the cookie, they they, they gave them you know, two or three cookies, two or three, two or three animal crackers, um, and, and let them eat those. Right? Um, now, yeah, if, if you did that with an adult, an adult would have a lot more, a lot, a lot, a lot more intervening psychology. Like an adult would, would probably think about, okay, what is, what are they trying to learn here? Or, you know, I want to prove that I'm a good person or that I have strong willpower or something like that. An adult's not going to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to eat the hell out of this cookie right now. <laughs> like, like an adult would, would be more capable of, of, of delaying the gratification. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so anyway, um, so, so what Mitchell then, then Mitchell kind of took all those kids and said, okay, these are the kids, and he did about 90 of them. These are the kids that delayed the gratification, and these are the kids that did not. And then he followed them over time, and he found that the ones who were able to delay their gratification had a lower body mass index, they had a higher SAT scores, they had a higher educational attainment, and lots of other things as well. Um, and, uh, and essentially it just said that the people who have the ability to delay their gratification are ultimately going to be better off in life, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this matters for endurance events because because so much of what we do in endurance events is delayed gratification, right? Like you and I went running this morning. 
okay, we had a nice run this morning. It was good. We had a good time. But really and truly, we're getting ready for events that are months and months away. Mm-hmm. Right? We're delaying our gratification. Like, like the payoff from this morning's run was not at the end of this morning's run. The payoff in this morning's run is going to be months from now. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, so there's, there's something about delaying gratification that's, that's literally woven into endurance sports. Mm-hmm. That, that you have to do a lot of things now and sacrifice a lot of things now in order for a big payoff later on. Right? right? Um, and so, so anything that has to do with kind of delayed gratification uh, certainly has ramifications for endurance sports. Well, um, as I know Patrick knows and as a lot of our listeners probably know, one of the things that you do in, in, in academia is that you replicate tests. Mm-hmm. And you slightly change conditions in order to clarify the results a little bit more. And so Michel himself actually changed the test a few times. He like um, on a couple of occasions he, he he made where the cookie wasn't facing the kid, or whether it was like where they couldn't see it. Um, and then on other occasions like he didn't leave the room. And mm-hmm. so the person was said said oh, I'll give you two cookies, but you got to wait. And then they didn't leave the room. Like so so like those sorts of changes. And then like seeing the differences that happen with that, you can you can make more well-informed inferences about about what's going on in the child's mind, right? Um, in 2011, there was actually um, a group of researchers who did brain scans mm-hmm. um, and, and actually wanted to look at what parts of the brain were being lit, not, lit up during this time and actually found some differences between in the brain chemistry of the people who delayed gratification who didn't. But anyway, this month is the one I want to talk to. There was a, some professors from NYU and from UC Irvine uh, released a study called Revisiting the Marshmallow Test, a conceptual replication investigating links between early delay of gratification and later outcomes. Um, and there were two big differences. The first is they got about 10 times the number of participants. They got about 900 participants in the study rather than simply 90 participants in the study. Um, and so obviously a larger N means that they can draw uh, much more valid and uh, scientifically solid inferences and conclusions. Um, and secondly, and this is the important one, there was a great deal more diversity. Um, they recruited a more diverse group of study group participants of, of research subjects. Um, in the 1960s, Mitchell, like a lot of people, wasn't paying attention to things like culture. Um, instead, he was just taking research and, and, and even if all his research subjects look the same, he figured out, oh, well, this applies to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And so he mostly got it from kids that were lived in and around the Stanford campus. Um, and so it's a lot of kids that are well-to-do because Palo Alto is a pretty well-to-do area, um, and, and kids whose parents were well-educated because they're professors at Stanford. Right. Right? Um, and so, so this group, though, the, the, the profs in 2018 here from NYU and UC Irvine said, we want to actually get a, a group of research participants that reflects the diversity of society in terms of race and, and in terms of who your parents are and their educational attainment and in terms of poverty. Um, and in short, the new study suggested that the capacity to hold out for that second marshmallow or for that later cookie or whatever uh, is shaped in large part by a child's social and economic background. Um, and in turn, that background, not the ability to delay gratification, is, what behind, is what's behind the kid's long-term success. Um, and so in other words, it was, it was, there was a more uh, direct correlation between the kids from poor backgrounds and those negative outcomes than there was between the delayed gratification or the, the inability to delay gratification and those negative outcomes. Right. So economic and social backgrounds were a bigger determinant in BMI, SAT scores, educational attainment, and all those other things they looked at than the ability to delay gratification. Um, so they, they had a couple of, of, of reasons behind that. One is that they suggested that, that um, 
kids who grow up in difficult environments, um, their life is less certain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they kind of learn to take what you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, you know, you, you see this in other ways, manifest in society in other ways, um, that, that, uh, somebody who's from a poor background who wins the lottery spends all their money. Right. They don't save it because they're worried that it's going to go away because all of their other money in their life has always gone away. Right. Right. Or well, they're all opportunities. I'll take even more probably than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, my favorite line from from or one of my favorite lines from Jay Z is 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 apropos here that if you grow up with holes in your zapatos, you'll be celebrating the minute you be having dough. Right. Um, that's the idea. Right. You get money, you spend it because it might go away because it's always gone away before, and that's the reason why you're in poverty. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so it's less certain. There's a cookie here now. I'm eating this cookie because I don't know if there's going to be a cookie here in 15 minutes. He right. said there is, but I don't know. The second thing is that, that uh, kids from poor backgrounds and uh, more disadvantaged backgrounds, they have less trust in authorities yes, and less trust in the system. And so this guy in a white lab coat says, oh, yeah, I'll give you a cookie in 15 minutes if you don't eat this one. He walks out. You're like, he's not coming back. Right. Like, like I, I, have, I have no faith. This child has no faith that this guy is going to be coming back and actually bringing me this cookie in 15 minutes. So I'm going to go ahead and take this cookie now because I can and it's here and it's good and it's tempting. Um, and if I don't get one in 15 minutes, hey, I probably wasn't going to get it anyway. <laughs> right, right. You know, and so, so, so very kind of interesting. Um, you know, taking culture into account, it's not a surprise that a study in the 1960s didn't think about culture. In 2018, in 2018, the original Marshmallow study would not have been published because we always consider culture in 2018. Right. Um, we've just kind of gotten to that place in academia. Um, and I think that's good. Um, I mean, what are your takeaways, Patrick? Oh, gosh, I have so many. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I don't want to digress too much because uh, this is actually one that I'm very passionate about. Um, cause I, so I can tell you, if you're in education, if you read anything in personal finance, I mean, this this study, this marshmallow test study, it, it, it had huge implications and it is quoted often. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, you can, I almost cannot, you know, t- you cannot pick up a personal finance book and not have one chapter written about, hey, you know, if you can't, you know, refrain from eating the marshmallow, you won't be rich or you won't, right. you know, have money. Yeah, because you can't, because you have to save money for for a payoff later on. Right, right. Um, you know, you, you don't learn to invest, right. right? And where and where that's you know coming into play now is millennials are not investing because we lived through the stock market crash, so we're almost like that generation that lived through the depression mm-hmm. where we're like, well, why the why why would I give these people my money? Wait, what's right. going on here? Um, but anyways, so when I read this. I just had such a, you know, aha moment of, of course. You know, like, we talked about the marshmallow test, and, you know, I want to keep this brief so we can get, bring it back to, to research or to, to exercise and training for endurance. You know, what would be the adult equivalent if somebody knocked on our door and said, hey, if you give me $1,000 now, I'll come back in 10 years and give you $10,000. Mm-hmm. Like, heck, no, I'm not doing that because I'm an adult, and I know that the only reason you're offering is because mm-hmm. you'll make money off me somehow. Um, so it really gets down to trust, mm-hmm. and, it gets, and it gets down to... Um, you know, context is the, have you lived a life where if you delay gratification, things would work out in the end. Like another point that I thought about too is, let's say the researcher did not give them the second marshmallow. Mm-hmm. The kids from maybe the, the the poor background may cry on their way home and say, "Well, that's not fair. He told me." And the, the parents may say, "Look, we did this study because we can collect fifty bucks. We're not buying you no damn marshmallow." <laughs> But the kid, the kids from the more well-to-do, would, their parents probably say, "Well, that's not fair. That's not right. Well, you deserve because you were good." Um, but anyways, and, and, and Mitchell in the original study, 
And so when, when he started doing some of the, the, the over the, the 70s and 80s, when he actually modified some of the study on his own, he actually um, modified the study at one point in such a way that he didn't give them the second cookie mm-hmm. and then measured them again a week later. And, and he did find that, that, that the students learn, when the students learn not to trust, for good reason, not to trust the researcher, they would, they would be less likely to delay their gratification a second time. Mm-hmm. And so, so that trust, but but he never he never put that in cultural terms and thought about how certain people, when they literally first come in their first time, wouldn't trust the researcher. Mm-hmm. Like he never he never considered that as a possibility. Um, he only thought that you would get to a place where you didn't trust the researcher if you were trained by him not to trust the researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so so trusting the researcher is something that was kind of on his radar, but he just didn't really. Yeah, which is totally understandable. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's done research knows everybody has a blind spot, right, um, so right. to speak. Um, my other big takeaway was, it's so interesting because when I always heard about the marshmallow test, my thought was that me personally, I thought, I think I would have done pretty good as a kid because I just don't have much of a sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. Like just that particular mm-hmm. temptation doesn't mean so much for me. But however, I can tell you like my little brother, not the case. He's always had a sweet tooth. Um, and then we've actually found there are actually reasons why. Um, you know, biologically, um, you know, so that could be part of it too, is knowing what's going to hit you and what's not. Mm-hmm. Like if, if, if that had been a marshmallow, I probably would have been okay with that as a five, six, seven year old mm-hmm. Coca-Cola. Oh boy. You know, that's, that's totally different. I probably would have, would have failed that one or maybe a, a different form of temptation. And here's where I think this relates to, um, endurance athletes. We keep kind of chipping away at the narrative of, you know, if you want to be a great athlete, you know, or, or we kind of chip away the, the willpower, you know, narrative. Mm-hmm. Not saying willpower is not important. Not saying you don't have to delay gratification. Not saying you don't have to um, do things you don't want to do to achieve success. You obviously do. However, what we're finding is it's not so much Jimmy has willpower, therefore Jimmy can, you know, delay gratification, therefore Jimmy is successful. It's much more of in this particular context with this with this surroundings he can make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. And so over time, mm-hmm. he can make a lot of the right decisions and then things start to compound on themselves mm-hmm. and it leads to more success. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk often about how one thing we want to do as coaches and as athletes is help people identify their biggest pain points. Mm-hmm. You know, that way you're not having to move mountains to get in an easy run. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to be spending huge amounts of willpower to get in an easy run because you're going to have to be doing that, you know, several times a week Hopefully for years, mm-hmm. you can't expect a Herculean effort that often. Right. So then, it, the, the the bigger thing is how can we identify, you know, what exactly the the main driver behind that pain point is, and then remove that stressor. Therefore, right. you're not having to insert right. a lot of willpower. You talked about us going for a run today. My willpower was very very little. Okay, <laughs> yes, when my alarm went off, I was like, ugh. But then I had a cup of coffee five minutes later, and it was like it, there was very little willpower. I cannot claim that I put in some great effort to get in today's run because I've kind of over years and years and years of being a runner put in mm-hmm. habits that made it easy mm-hmm. to make the right decision. Yeah, you know, and I think that's a very different narrative than you know. Yeah, this person has this internal attribute, therefore, yeah, this outcome. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting in that regard too. Yeah, that that, that it's almost like. Like endurance athletes and then coaches of endurance athletes, they need to enculturate themselves or they need to be enculturated yeah. into having 
dispositions that will that will benefit them in their endurance pursuits. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because because those kids came in with dispositions. They came in with with a culture. They came in with with a worldview, a way of of, of seeing the world. And and what this most recent study, study suggests is that that's what ultimately determines not only whether they're going to take the cookie and and or the marshmallow, but also all these other long-term things. And so so we need to as coaches and as athletes, we need to make sure that we're kind of setting up habits and mindsets and all that sort of thing that that will lead to a worldview that will intentionally, eventually, not intentionally, but also intentionally, um, uh, lead to results. Um, Yeah, environment matters, I guess. Mm -hmm. The the, the culture, the the athletes with whom you surround yourself matter. That kind of circles back around to what we were talking about with, you know, Mm -hmm. hard versus hard, easy versus easy, or easy days being easy. It also... So related to that, it also makes me think that maybe we as endurance athletes shouldn't be so arrogant about the fact that we are so much stronger mentally than everybody else. No, one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I that, fall totally prey into that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that 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 you know, uh, you know, your sports punishment is our sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, things like that, that. That makes me think that that you know that idea that that we have something that other people don't have. Um, Maybe that's not maybe that's not totally true. Even though I also am reminded of the piece of research we talked about a few weeks ago that did suggest that, that distance runners, in particular, or the distance runners that we studied, had a greater degree of thoughtfulness and reflectiveness and ability to to, to engage in deep thought. Mm-hmm. But maybe it suggests that that's actually a result of the running and the and the cycling and the swimming rather than than the cause of it. Um, the other thing I actually think of too, and this comes as a coach, is that. It does make me think about the whole idea of trusting the researcher. So you have to trust the researcher that the delayed gratification is going to come. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you were to draw a direct comparison, the coach should be the researcher. Mm-hmm. And the right. athlete is the, is the research subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and the athlete has to trust the coach in order to really truly feel, in, in order to take advantage of delayed gratification. Absolutely. And I think that's something that, that's important for me to continue and always keep in mind as a coach. That, that if you don't have a lot of faith in your coach, if you don't have faith that, that oh, your coach says, don't worry, it's going to show up on race day. You're going to be fine on race day. All this work you're doing, it's going to, you're going to, I know you feel like crap now, don't worry. You're going to be good on race day. Um, if, if an athlete doesn't have that sort of faith in their coach, they're not going to be able to delay gratification in the same way that the child was not able to delay the gratification unless they had the trust in the researcher. Right. I in think the, that's very interesting. In the system or the process. Right, right. 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 Okay. Yeah, you never want to use the dreaded words because I said so. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's fascinating stuff, and it, and it also just gets to a, to a, to a, another big point, and that is that people are complex. Mm-hmm. I mean, we act and different. Yeah, and different. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, we react differently in so many different scenarios. Like I said, I could pass the marshmallow test. I could not pass the Coca Cola test. <laughs> you know, like that's that's just me personally. Uh, and then you look at big picture. Yeah. Well, you know. Um, you know, I heard somebody say once, nobody is really, there aren't many fundamentally, people aren't fundamentally dumb. Mm -hmm. They just come from, they have different criteria, different expectations, Mm -hmm. different life experiences that lead them to frame situations differently. And that, and this study certainly in some ways reinforces that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and in turn, and, and bring it back to endurance sports here, and this can probably be our last word on it, that, that. There are certain people who have certain environments and certain backgrounds that, that, that predispose them to being able to interact better with coaches and, and be able to, to, to train with a goal that's several months away. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right, Patrick, I think that wraps us up, right? I think it does, unless we have another digression we have to take here. We have- <laughs> I was going to say, we went deep this week, man. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, well thanks, everybody, for, uh, for joining us. If, uh, assuming that you've made it to this point here, we appreciate your listening. And let us know what you thought about all of our digressions on Facebook, or on Twitter, or wherever. So thanks for listening. And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Make sure that you reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Reach out to our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, at itlcoaching.com, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And don't forget about our other sponsor, Casey the Travel Planner. You can find her on Facebook at facebook.com slash MEV. You can drop her an email at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, travelplanner at gmail.com. Or just go to her website, caseytravelplanner.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.